You got the Night Owl Radio coming at you. Night Owl Radio coming at you, spinning all your favorite waxy hits from the 60s, 70s, and today. And today, apparently being the 80s. (laughs) Today, the FM radio revolution. What do you think we should do for a cold open? For a cold open? Yeah. It's like the part of the show where we... uh, I know what a cold open is. (laughs) It's not my first time at the rodeo. That's true. What do I think we ought to do? Yes, tell me. I think we ought... To just talk like we talk. All right. I think that's a good plan. I like that your dog is so chill on the floor. Slevin Calebra. I only use his full name when he's being a bad dog. That Slevin is why Calebra. That is why that name works. It's but y- funny. I've told you we have a cat named Slevin. You I know. a dog named Slevin. We have a cat yeah, named Yeah, that's Slevin. why we're so connected, Johnny Neal. And you know what else connects us? Beer. 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 Digital Noise. This is, of course, the show where we break down the Blu-rays and the DVDs that you should buy, the ones that you should try, and the ones that you should deny. I, am, I know, right? Right off the was, cuff. Top of oh my, my head. You're like ghost face killer of <laughs> podcasting. There. I have never heard that in my life, and I love the fuck out of that compliment. <laughs> I will take that. Thank you, Johnny Neal. Oh, yeah. Johnny Neal over there on the microphone. Johnny Neal on the microphone. And you've already heard me. I'm Brian Salisbury. Thank you so much for joining Brian us, guys. Brian Ghostface Killer of Podcasts. And Johnny um, Neal, the slightly old, dirty bastard. <laughs> Middle-aged, dirty bastard. Oh, Johnny Neal with his polyester coat shorts. <laughs> this is going to be fun. I can already tell this is going to be fun. I, I, I carry a whistle around and I make teenagers run. Is that not a rape whistle? I thought that was a rape whistle. Well, like a third-party rape whistle. So one you got out of a Captain Crunch box. Yeah. So the prize in this week's cereal, a rape whistle. <laughs> a rape whistle. Captain Crunch Actually, got I got dark. it out of a granola. More like, box, oops, really. I raped you. Instead of fiber one Instead box. of oops, all berries. Hey, everybody, if you want to hear more gems it a, like that. Who's in a fiber one box and it's really a, I've fallen and I can't get up whistle. <laughs> it's a life alert. <laughs> If you want to hear more brilliance like that, I wanted to let you know that you can do so on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast or One of Us Net, and you can like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com/OneOfUsNet. So we are here to talk about a very small group, uh, a, v- a very small batch of titles. However, Johnny Neal and I share a very common uh, passion for black exploitation. So the batch of titles we're going to talk about this week very near and dear to our hearts. But there. of course we can't start with that because that would be too easy. So that instead, we jumping the gun. That would be jumping the gun. Oh yeah, that would be jumping the 44 Magnum that Truck Turner pulls out of his pants. Oh yeah, baby. In fact, we're not tra- talking about Truck Turner first or at all on this show. <laughs> no, but I it's always in my heart. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love Isaac Hayes. So instead we're going to start with Project Almanac. Because you miss your high school days and you want to relive them again and No, again. see, that's the thing is I don't, and I don't. I don't miss them. I don't want to relive them. Uh, if I wanted to relive any time in my life, it would definitely be my college years. Uh, I would be saved by the bell of the college years, not whatever abomination this movie is. I'm not going to call it an abomination. You know what? I'm going to backtrack. You are absolutely right. It is not an abomination. It is just super lazy. It is the... 
it's a to me it's a textbook example of why not to use your iPhone to make a movie. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I, I've been, okay, here's my thing, and I have felt this way since I saw the Blair Witch Project yes, and sir. any other iPhone movie that I've seen since then. They are about as entertaining as watching any other stranger's home movies for two hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, found footage is dead. It's It was stillborn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think this movie kind of proves it. And one of my favorite... Okay, so the basic premise of this movie is you have a guy named David, who is our hero ostensibly, who is trying to get into MIT. And he gets accepted into MIT, except that they're not going to give him scholarship money. And we're supposed to feel bad for him. And we're supposed that. to feel bad he for like him. He suddenly just slumps over and starts pouting about it. And is like, well, maybe I'll go to community college then. It's like... Dude, you know, there are millions, literally millions of people using student loans. And when you get out of MIT, you can get a job where you can pay back your student loan. Yeah, You're not going yeah. to the Rhode Island School of Design or something, you know, that's that you think, I'm going to spend a billion dollars in loans here and make it back in five years. No, you really will, especially if you can create a hover drone that you can operate by pointing at it with your hand. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's the first thing that I was already like, I don't believe this because he invents a hover drone. You're going to tell me the military is not going to be interested in your hover drone that exactly. you control with your hands? That's bullshit. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, so he can't go to... like the His military. only two options, the, the continuum of options for this kid is MIT, everything paid for, or community college. There's no <laughs> middle ground whatsoever. You wouldn't even have to go to the military. You could get David Copperfield yeah. or Brian Brushwood or some magician <laughs> that is like, wow, I can really do shit with that, you know? Put, hang a ghost from it and fly it over an audience. Yeah. I mean, they're just paranormal the, science activity. The, exactly. I there's, would watch that. There's no reason to think. Yeah, you don't have any options. Yeah. So instead, he starts digging in the basement and finds out that his father, who was also a scientist, had started, who had done a lot of the groundwork, has invented a time machine, and he is going to use that. Okay. Here's my biggest problem with the movie right off the bat. Right off the bat. The number one issue with this kid is that he doesn't have enough money to go to MIT. And as soon as they discover the time machine, his stupid friends are like, why don't we use this to play the lottery and make money? He's like, no, that's not what it's about. I'm like, I'm going to stop you. <laughs> your, literally, your only motivation in this entire movie is to go to MIT. And the only th your only obstacle is that you can't afford it. And then as soon as your friend says, we can use this time machine to make money, you're like, no, that's not what it's about. Then you don't deserve to go to MIT. Just give up the dream. If you don't see this as the only possible way to fulfill your dream that no one is ever going to give you shit for, then and, you shouldn't be doing it. And let's not forget that he found his father's time machine because he was looking around for stuff because his mother decided to sell the house. So that he could go to MIT. So that he could go to you MIT. literally will lose your house if you don't use this time machine yeah. for ill-gotten gains, but you're going to take the moral high ground? Yeah. Bullshit. And you're a teenager. I'm gonna call giant bullshit. Also, also, one of the greatest lines in this movie that sums up how silly it is, is there's a point in the film, by the way, all found footage, this entire movie. All of it. Halfway through, where he's, David says to his friends, okay, from now on, film everything. Right. Motherfucker, what were you doing for the first half of this movie? <laughs> what OCD... <laughs> Oh, now we're, we're going to film everything? Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to film everything. Yeah. Thanks for making that an edict, because before this, 
what were we doing? How is this movie a thing if you weren't already filming everything? Yeah, they could have just called it Selfie the Motion Picture. Selfie the Motion Picture. Sci-fi Selfie. And the thing is, I like the idea, except that every time I was on board with this movie, I was like, oh wait, that's Time Cop. Oh wait, that's Groundhog Day. Oh wait, that's... Like, every single time I got on board with this movie, I realized all it was doing was stealing from a better movie. There is nothing original about this film whatsoever. And you know what? Just saying, wow, this is like Groundhog Day, does not make it a meta commentary. No. No, even though they mention... Here's the best part, is they think by mentioning the movies they're ripping off, they're being meta. Right. And it's like, no, you're just pointing out plagiarism because you're literally doing nothing new with that concept. You're doing nothing new with the idea of a feedback loop if two people from parallel uh, timelines are in the same room. Oh, the feedback loop. The fe- yeah, like Ron Silver proved to us that that's a bad idea in Time right. Cop, okay? Right. But just mentioning Time Cop does not absolve you from wholesale plagiarism. And they never quite worked out what it happened. Yeah, exactly. I never really never understood that. what was going on. What the, what, uh, why the, is that happening? And how did they go from... Making all of the metal in the house twirl around yeah. at a car forming into the brick wall, a toy car. How did they go from that to having it perfect? See, and that's what bothers me is like, this is a movie made last year, 2014, and they don't even bother to do anything with special effects. It's literally just jerk the camera around, now we're back in time. At least Robert Zemeckis had the uh, the courtesy of adding flames to the bottom of a DeLorean and making a stunt driver drive to a mall parking lot to demonstrate how time travel works. This movie literally gives us nothing but this very emo storyline about a guy who like, oh, I manipulated time so I could get with this girl, which is like, yeah, great, Bill Murray. We've seen this already. And the fact that you're pointing it out doesn't make it any more original. And you've literally done nothing new with the concept to the point that I don't care. And the girl, the sister was quite a charming teenage girl. She was funny. She was the most interesting person, and she was the one holding the camera the whole time. Yeah, So exactly. you cheat the cast out of the most interesting member, who was kind of like, well, I'm just in it for kicks. His two nerd friends were awful. You know, I just didn't quite, you know... What's the point? What's what the point? What is the point? Yeah. And you understand why this movie went through, like, three titles. Oh, did it? It was like, Welcome to Yesterday, and then it was like... Fool on the Hill. Fool on the Hill, then it was like Labor Day, then it was, it was uh, Labor Day. Time Officer, then it was, it was uh, Frequency sloth 2, day. Slot Day. Yeah. yeah, it was... No, it, it's true, this movie did go through a number of titles before they... Paul Blart, Time Cop. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Like, I don't get me wrong, I don't like this movie... I'm not ready to compare it to Paul Blart Mall Cop. However, um, it it is pretty bad. I will tell you that if you want to see this movie, uh, this Blu-ray comes with uh, an ultraviolet edition. So it has the little uh, cardboard slipcase, so you'll think that it's oh, some. Oh, I'm sorry. This has an edition. alternate opening and some deleted scenes, as well as an alternate ending. You know, it should have been alternate the movie. The whole. How about movie. an alternate movie? Ah. That's what I'm saying. However, we're going to jump immediately from that to one of my two favorite movies this year. And I'm so, so fucking excited to talk about this movie with you, Johnny Neal. And that is Kingsman, The Secret Service. You know, now and then a movie comes to the theater and you think, I want to go see that. And you don't get around to going to it. And then it goes away and you kind of go, oh, well, I don't care. 
And then if you're lucky, like me, and you have good friends like Brian who invite you to do a show like this with our wonderful fans and listeners. Fans. I say that word very self I know. It weirds me out, too. It really yeah. weirds me out, too. So to our friends, that. our online friends who like write that. to us and, and that I appreciate. Well, let me tell you. Sometimes you're just born under the lucky star, and you get a second chance. Oh, my God. Wasn't this great? This movie blew my mind, and not just in the way that the movie is. One, it's the best commercial for a GoPro camera that you could ever see. <laughs> every fight scene, everybody has a GoPro on their head, and they edit it in. You're just, it's just kind of amazing. It is an amazingly, beautifully well-done movie. This remained, even watching this Blu-ray, I was like, maybe I was a little too excited. It was early in the year. We had suffered through a lot of shit in theaters. Maybe that's what it was. So I watched it again on Blu-ray. Turns out, exactly as excited about this movie now as I was in theaters several months ago. Kingsman, The Secret Service, is based on a comic book by Mark Millar and Dave Gibbons um, called The Secret Service. And the basic story is that there is a secret... Okay, this movie is basically, if you did... If James Bond violently butt-fucked Men in Black. It would be <laughs> Kingsman the Secret Service because it is borrowing so heavily from James Bond and yet at the same time, its story structure is borrowing... Like, aesthetically, it's borrowing from James Bond. Story structure-wise, it's borrowing from Men in Black. And the end result is something so bombastic and fun and yet at the same time one of the most subversive films i've seen in years yeah it's funny uh first i appreciate your slash fic uh description there. <laughs> you're that welcome was, you're that welcome, was pretty John. good i i feel like i know you a little better now than i did five <laughs> minutes ago the, if the princess at the end of the movie is men in black and james <laughs> bond is our hero then there will be butt sex you know what i don't i don't think of it as james bond I think of it as the Avengers, the, the See, Steed and, and Peel Avengers. Yes, I get that. Because it, it, it had a little more cheeky sci-fi to it. And cheeky aristocracy, yeah. the umbrella being factored into the fight sequences. I totally, totally get yeah. that. I, 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 Yeah, especially the umbrella. There's no yeah. way that wasn't a conscious decision. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love, the not the movie, but the original series uh, with... with uh, Steed and, and Peel. I yeah. just love those shows. If you've never seen those, please watch them. Diana Rigg and Patrick McNee are the coolest non-romantic couple in the world. Yeah. I, I mean, they're just so great. That is probably the greatest differential of great TV show to terrible movie ever. Yeah, yeah. Because it is a great TV show. And it didn't have to be a terrible movie. It didn't have it to be a movie at all. It didn't have to be a movie so, at all. You know what? Forget that movie exists. Pretend this is the Avengers movie. You'll well, be so much that's happier. That's a good point. That's so a, much happier. That's a good call. Um, I What must also complement the script, Colin Firth, for one, having Colin Firth in it punches it up a couple of, of rungs up the ladder. And some of his lines are like, Write that down, young men. You know, I mean, he was a really, really good uncle figure. When, yeah. When he said that, uh, uh, you don't, he quoted Hemingway that uh, it's not about being better than other people. It's, it's about being superior to your former superior self. Superior to your former I self. I love that quote. Yeah, me too. I also love the quote where he turns to a woman at a very right-wing church and says, so hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon. <laughs> Colin Firth. That is the that is the miracle of this fucking movie. Is they turn Colin Firth into an action hero. Yeah, 
That has never happened. That has never fucking happened. Colin Firth works as an action hero. As much as you may think that's ridiculous, the guy wears sweaters well, but how does he actually fare as an action hero? Very, very well. That's what this movie teaches us. Basically, the Kingsman is is the men in black of uh, England. They operate completely under no one's jurisdiction. They're a super secret organization of spies. And... It, the movie starts with them on an operation. Like, I love the opening of this movie. Like, Matthew Vaughn, who directed this, who also directed Kick-Ass, who also directed X-Men uh, First Class, opens this, is this movie. better than both of those. Yeah. Beginning to end. I have anyway. to. And I love I, both of those movies, but I have to agree with you. Both of those movies have really good scenes in them, but mm. to me, don't add up to a whole movie. You know what? I have to absolutely agree with you on that. I never thought I would find myself saying that, but it is absolutely true. And... This so, movie is a whole movie from beginning to end. So this movie opens with the Dire Straits, I Want My MTV. Yeah. And you think, oh, this is going to be very referential to the 80s. Oh, it turns out it's the mid-90s. And they're pulling back on Afghanistan. And a and it's just like so in your face, so violent. And I love that about Matthew Vaughn. Is Matthew Vaughn is not afraid to make R-rated summer movies. Do you yeah. know how rare that is anymore? Yeah. That yeah. we get R-rated summer movies. And Kingsman is like the crown jewel of the R-rated summer movies. So it starts off with this mission. He and the Kingsman are, are rounding up these terrorists. And something goes wrong. And one of his agents dies. He visits the mother. He visits the wife of the agent and the young son of the agent gives him a medal and says hold on to this if you ever need anything call the number and wouldn't you know it uh young eggsy grows up to be uh one of the the kids from attack the block which is is awesome okay no he's not but he looks like one of the kids and he acts like one of the kids from attack the block um and uh, yeah so he decides uh taron uh edgerton is the name of the actor who by the way is fantastic in this movie yeah he is i've never seen him in anything else I before this wondered who he was came out of nowhere and so he he's, he's a troublemaker his mom has since married a complete douchebag and he like stands up to the guy all the time and lands him in jail a lot he just doesn't care he fucking hates this guy and that's he, how he, he even got himself kicked out of the marines yeah so that he could protect his mother against this guy. So, exactly. So yeah. he is one of the rare juvenile delinquents in films that you actually feel for every step of the way. Right. He's not just written to be like, oh, he doesn't follow the rules. It's like, no, we've given him a concrete reason, a concrete motivation for not following the rules. And that is amazing to me. So he ends up calling this number when he gets jailed, and Colin Firth bails him out of jail immediately. And he is entered into... So since this agent has died at the beginning of the movie, uh, there's an opening slot, so they all recommend someone for... The new agent. And they're all named after the Knights of the Round Table. Yes. Colin Firth's character is Galahad. There is also Lancelot. There is also their their Q. Yeah, Mark Strong plays Q. But he's he's called Merlin in this film. He's a little more field happy than Q ever is. Can I just say this right away? Every great British actor is in this movie. Every great British actor is in this movie, including Mark Hamill, who's not British. Mark Hamill! <laughs> Mark Hamill's not even British, but he's adopting Man. himself as a great British actor. My cocaine is in this. <laughs> uh, we have Mark Strong, as I mentioned. We have, obviously, Colin Firth. We have uh, Jack Davenport. Uh, we also have a very brief appearance, but very spot on, um, by... Oh, my God, I'm going to forget his name. He was in... Uh, uh, oh my God! Help me out. He w- he was in uh, uh, Hot Fuzz. Uh, Patty Ke- Patty Considine. Patty Considine is in this movie for like five fucking seconds. 
uh, and does an amazing job. It. Yeah. It's was because that the father? No. He's no, the, was that the guy? Yes. yes okay. There it is. You know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. I didn't even place him in yep. that. I, I knew he looked familiar, but I didn't place him. Wow. So, yeah. Because he usually is wearing a leather jacket and has a... Or has a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, so <laughs> Wait, was that him? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think it was him. Now I'm thinking it wasn't him. Just ignore what that I said, his, guys. his brother Larry Considine. <laughs> Just... It was Jack Davenport is who I thought Patty Considine was, um, so I'm completely wrong. But the point is, um, so they bring in all of these. So it becomes Ender's Game all of a sudden. We have all these young, uh, up and coming guys who are like, I want that spot. All these young spies in training facing a series of tests. Really cool training sequences. Really cool. And then you have the villain of the film. By the way, again, I want to point out this movie owes so much of its ex- of its existence to James Bond that they have conversations in the movie. About how James Bondy the plot is, and and how what kind of a villain he likes better the old school James Bond villain who gives a little monologue and dies, and uh, is taking over for money and and power, or the new ones that want to rule the world for their own weird abstract reasons that don't even make sense in the story. Exactly. But okay, we're forgetting that there's a subset of villains, and that is the preppy boys. Yes. The, the class system of England is alive and well. Even when you're the best of the best, that little best of the best has to be divided into the even better. Yeah, and that's, again, where I think Matthew Vaughn is super subversive because he's making a blockbuster film, and one of his biggest influences is the Roddy McDowell film, If. Like, right? that's really what's going on here. And then, oh my God, I'm not going to... Guys, I don't want to spoil anything for you. But there is a scene in this movie that will not only rethink, and that will not only recast in your brain the greatest use of the song Freebird in film, <laughs> but will also completely, completely undermine the idea of villains, villains versus heroes. And I love that scene so much because it is so fucking ballsy. Oh, yeah. Because we watch our hero do things we don't expect a hero to do, but at the same time, they're not unmotivated, and the whole time we're sympathetic to him. Yeah. And yeah. that is remarkable. Yeah. And it's just like jaw-droppingly extensive. You know, the, yeah. the, the it's a it's a fight scene, let's say. Yeah. And it goes on for a while and never stops being edge of your seat. I mean, it's so good. I have never seen an audience react to that scene the way I've seen an audience react to that scene. Like people literally at the end were trying to catch their breath. <laughs> And it, like, this, guys, I, I cannot say enough about how fucking good this movie is. It is so smart, so cleverly written. The characters are so awesome, and they are so memorable. Like, the assassin, like, tell me she's not a Bond villain. Tell oh. me, like, you take Odd Job and put his hat brim on his legs, and you yeah. have the henchwoman of this movie. Well, I think that it certainly uh, shows that that Blade Runner guy from South Africa did it. I mean,. <laughs> Pistorius? Pistorius, yeah. It's, it's, really, certainly... it's really essential to the Pistorius that she had blades on her feet. Yes. <laughs> I think that the, if, if the prosecution had shown this movie, they had have thrown the book at that guy. You know, and I thought of you a lot, Johnny Neal, while I watched this movie, because it is very sartorially sound. Oh, yes. This movie makes you want to buy $500 suits. Oh, my God. Like, I literally am saving up right now. I watched it again. I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm putting all of my extra money into buying a new suit because, oh my God, the Kingsmen, their cover is that they are tailors. Right. And they take a lot of pride in the uniforms, in the in the suits, the, oh my God, Oxford's not broke. Oxford's not broke. Oh my God. This is, a, this is like a Bhopal 
James Bond film. <laughs> like, if Bo and Martin had written a James Bond film, and if, if you starred in it, John Well, let me, let me tell you something else that I really loved about it. Uh-huh. I was kind of on the villain's side as far as the philosophy that he had. And that's the thing is there's like there's like George Romero levels of subtext about mass consumerism going on in this film. It is and and oh my god, you guys, this is the only movie this year or any year of his presidency that I've ever seen a director murder President Obama for comedy in a blockbuster film. And and, and completely removed from any kind of, of political Yeah, it's not political whatsoever. It's just, okay, well, you're part of the problem because you're a world leader. Yeah. And so this is what has to happen. I, I like, it is impossible for me to recommend, that. like, I feel like I'm probably overselling this movie and there are a lot of people who can be like, oh, I went into it with such a high expectation because of you. And like, okay, I get that. But this remains, even after watching it on Blu-ray, one of my... The other movie that is my favorite this year is Mad Max Fury Road. My two favorite movies this year, Mad Max Fury Road and Kingsman. That has not changed. This movie is fucking phenomenal. Please do yourself a favor. Please, please, please do yourself a favor and watch this. Both Johnny Neal and I give this the highest of recommendations. And I can also say that if you buy this on Blu-ray, you're going to watch it more than once. It's, it's going to be one of those movies where you learn every line. Yeah. Hail Satan. It, it, Hail Satan. And have a lovely afternoon. And have a lovely afternoon. So amazing. So I, it's just such a good movie. I adore this movie. And great this, set designs. Oh my God, yes. To go with the clothes, the great set designs, the great... It had a... Uh, I, I'm a big Jerry Anderson Thunderbirds fan. It had that kind of uh, boy gadget hardware, you know... Uh, uh, amazement with itself yeah. that I, I like about Jerry Anderson. Um, I, I it, for it, most of the creators behind it are American, right? Uh, wait, is Matthew Vaughn American? I thought he was British. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I was wrong about uh, Patty Considine, so maybe I'm wrong about this. He's actually British. Yeah, oh, okay. No, he's actually British. Okay, because I, I thought because of his other movies that he was American. No, he uh, just he works very comfortably with him. But I think sure what's does. so great about this movie is that he like breaks himself of the confines of what it means to make an American blockbuster and make something that is not only fun, not only entertaining, not only bombastic, but absolutely fucking. Sub- there was a point in this movie. Where I was, I, I think I said, this is like if Jonathan Swift wrote Michael Bay films. That's great. And that's exactly what's good. There's social commentary, there's classes commentary, and at the same time, you don't even care because you're having so much fun. And there's cheeky rib poking jokes about, you know, <laughs> butt sex and stuff. About I butt mean, sex. You know, <laughs> it's just like. About butt sex. With princesses. <laughs> Sorry, Mario, your princess is uh, has her ass on another guy's cock. <laughs> Is it's pretty much how the original game uh, dialogue was supposed to go. I don't know what I was talking about, but the point oh, is, you know. Oh, I know. <laughs> I absolutely know. So yes, this comes. This is my pick of the week, by the way, without a doubt. Yeah. Like we have a lot of great oh, yeah. black exploitation movies, but because of this movie and because of uh, this has uh, a six part look behind the scenes. Um, this has three image galleries. This is just. This is a beautiful transfer. Uh, this this movie fucking rules, and this is undoubtedly my pick of the week. And for the ladies, I watched it with my wife, who doesn't usually go for that sort of movie, and she loved it. And we talked about it the next day three or four times. It was like, can you believe that movie last night? <laughs> so so uh, it's not just a, a, a boy movie, a guy movie. No, it's not. It's, it, it's it, quite got a wide appeal, even though it's mostly dudes in the movie, except for the assassin. And s- except for the assassin. 
So let's go ahead from there. I mean, that's obviously our pick of the week. Let's jump into it. Let's just do this. Let's do this. Let's get into the black exploitation section of the show. Uh, uh, oh, oh, my heart. My heart. I'm so excited for this, uh, you guys. The only thing that the only thing that pains me is that none of the titles we're talking about in the next segment of films have any special features whatsoever. Because if there's one thing I wanted to see, it's everything about the making of all of these movies. Or at least a trailer. Something. Or, you know, there are so many documentaries uh, because I've seen interviews with Jack Hill where he's uh, on Switchblade Sisters I think has a good yes which is an amazing film so let's let's just start at the beginning though let's just which which one are we going to start with let's start with Hammer oh hell yes the movie that gave Fred the Hammer no that's not fair that introduced audiences to Fred the Hammer Williams, and he actually got his nickname playing football for the Kansas City Chiefs. That's right. what most people don't know. Uh, but Fred the Hammer Williamson, one of his earliest films, is a movie, in fact, called Hammer, which I had never. I will admit fully, I had never seen before. I thought it was a private eye movie. I, I did too. Yeah, <laughs> my Hammer. That's good. Oh well, there's that. But I just you know for the time frame and and for the genre, you know, yeah, it was some kind of private eye. Cop, something. He actually plays a character named B.J. Hammer, who is a dock worker who gets discovered during a fight by a shady boxing promoter. And this movie becomes uh, the black exploitation Rocky at that point, well, even though it preceded Rocky that's... by five fucking years. <laughs> that's a pretty loose. I, dude, I'm sorry. Like that to me is exactly what this movie is. It is. It is the fucking black exploitation Rocky, and this is a movie about. Uh, you know about Fred Williamson deciding whether or not he can deal with the absolute corruption of the business in order to succeed, or whether he is going to completely break off and go his own way. And um, one of the things I love most about this movie is William Smith. William Smith. William if you are not familiar with William Smith, you need to get to know William Smith. You absolutely do. His his, his most prestigious role in the seventies was in the uh, miniseries on ABC called Rich Man, Poor Man, which pretty much gave Nick Nolte his start uh, and a couple of other people. But William Smith, to watch him in movies, is in the first Rockford Files. He plays the cop in Rumblefish. I mean, really, he's in so many movies that you just kind of go, oh, well, he's in William Smith, you know. Uh, he is a very burly bodybuilder type mm-hmm. with this kind of a dark, vacant eyes yeah. who really looks... Like he enjoys being sadistic. He doesn't just beat people up because that's his job. He really likes doing it. Yeah. And he so, also looks like the bastard love child of Kurt Russell and Rip Torn, which wow. is my favorite thing about young William Smith is, is that's what he looks like. Wow. Now, here's the funny part. You see him and you think he's some street thug that they hired to, to play this part, some bodybuilder thug who has no skills he was born on a ranch he's got like a master's or a phd in russian history he speaks like five slavic languages yeah he he's he's, brilliant he's brilliant yeah it's almost like he just makes movies to pay the rent to go do other stuff you know yeah he's he was in all of the roger corman biker movies he was in he was the charlie corsmo of his time he was already too smart for movies he just did it because he wanted to try it yeah and you have seen him, by the way. You have seen... I guarantee you guys, you have seen him in a number of movies. He is the bad guy in almost everything he's ever been in. Yeah. He is one of the go-to villain character actors in Hollywood. And he's actually... One of my favorite roles he ever played, by the way, 
and this is really idiosyncratic, is a movie called Eye of the Tiger with Gary Busey and Yafit Koto. Right. Have you seen this? I, I've not. It's Walking Tall with Gary Busey. Oh. And William Smith plays the head of the biker gang that's like running the town. He's always a biker gang guy. Yeah, that's what he does. That's literally, he was in The Rebels. Um, you know, he was in uh, The Cop Killers. He was in, um, I mean, like, that's what he does. He was in The Outsiders, for fuck's sake. I mean, that's, that's, he was in Red Dawn? He's one of the bad guys in Red Dawn, <laughs> for fuck's sake. Like, come on, guys. You know you've seen this guy. You know he's from Russian him. for that one, right? Yeah, exactly. He he plays the the Russian like the main Russian bad guy in that movie, and yeah. So this okay. So Hammer. One of the things that was so surprising to me is like, I like Fred the Hammer Williamson. I like him as an actor. He is one of the patron saints of my podcast, Junk Food Cinema. And this movie is him very early on, and you can tell. Yeah, you can tell he's 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 working out how to be an actor. He's working out how to have chops beyond I'm really charming and charismatic. Yeah. Yeah, because he actually doesn't... He looks... Okay, here's something I, I noticed. For all of his awesomeness and his amazing physique and his... Clearly, he could kick anybody's ass. There's a poster of Muhammad Ali in the background in one scene and you just think, yeah, Fred Williamson... He'd you, kick your ass. He'd kick your fucking ass <laughs> so bad. <You> just, <laughs> it's like he's actually kind of thin. He doesn't yeah. have a broad chest. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's a very slim built guy. Yeah, Absolutely. which is funny because I mean you know I'm I'm just so used to seeing him older. Yeah. Um, but in, I mean he's amazingly built thin, but he's he looks more like a track star than sure. a football star. Yeah. Unlike Jim Brown, you know, at the time, who looked like of, a, a wall of muscle. What, like I I think that if Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali would have had a fight, I mean Muhammad Ali is more trained, you know, at the time would have. But Slaughter's going to blow his mind. Slaughter's going to take his time. <laughs> That's absolutely right. The part of this film I love so much is that great black exploitation hits you with this unexpected quality. And the quality in this film for me is watching Fred Williamson deal with the moral quandary of, I want to be a prize fighter, I want to be the champion of the world, but they're asking me to take a dive. It becomes Snatch. It becomes, you know, Guy Ritchie Snatch, where he's like, the, the corrupt uh, fight promoter's like, you need to take a dive. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. There's well, no way I'm going to take a dive. And he's not only saying that, but he's going, oh, all these people that have been telling me that's what's in store for me weren't bullshitting. Yeah. I thought they were jealous of me because I'm so awesome. Turns and they out, were no. Yeah, because he has a fight where he goes, he knocks a guy down, and the guy just goes face down and is yeah. counted out. And he's standing there looking at him while they're trying to hustle him off to the corner. Fred Williamson is like, that guy should not have been knocked out by that punch, you know? Like, and so then he starts doubting himself. Like, right. has everybody been taking a dive? Because he didn't believe it at all when people were telling him that this is what you're getting into. He would answer them with some sort of slam poetry answer. <laughs> <laughs> Fred Williamson slam poetry. Oh my God. Can I buy an album of that right now? Everything he says is in a, like a, a little iambic pentameter that starts with mama. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's what's so great about this movie is like you have the boxing moments. It has a great theme song, by the way. Well, the song, the theme song was more than a little derivative of Isaac Hayes. Oh, of course it was. I mean, no, of course it was. Like, I mean, Derville Martin is in this movie. Like, this is going to yeah. remind you right away of uh, Boss Nigger, which is still my favorite black exploitation right. movie. It has the greatest soundtrack, um, but. I mean, yeah, I still I still like the theme song a lot. And I like the fact that even though this movie 
presents itself as another run of the mill bargain basement black exploitation movie has this sort of like high level moral exploration of like should I be doing this do I really want to get to the top this way and I think it, I think it works out really well I think that because he is such a badass mm-hmm. I mean figurative I mean not figuratively but obviously you know <laughs> just look at him it's he doesn't even wear a shirt for the first half of the movie no, he does he's not. wearing like bell bottom jeans and a Levi's he wears denim jacket and then his chest and with no shirt and yeah. and nobody goes hey you're not wearing a shirt you know like <laughs> he's just like he he pulls it off you know yeah. so the fact that he's such a badass and that he's a street <coughs> guy he's yeah. i mean he's working the docks you know like non-union kind of work in the docks yeah that are a front for heroin importing you know there's three million dollars worth of heroin in that box there's three million dollars worth of heroin in that stock footage yeah and it's an old wooden crate like yeah oh the the art could be in there and then (laughs) that that he's he plays naive naive and ego smash into each other in his face so many times and, and and it's like wow you know he's really a much better actor than i would have given him credit for as far as i mean i think of him mostly as an action hero sure and a kind of a bitter one you know a little you bit see yeah, his yeah, interviews yeah. now it's like he's really not a happy guy i actually got to interview him and that was one of the greatest moments of my entire career oh my so God. it was so exciting because the first time we scheduled the interview he wasn't there at the time we were supposed to do it, and his his agent sends me an email. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, his dog got out. He's chasing his dog around the neighborhood. I'm like, I I totally Completely understand that. Understand. Does he need any help? Yeah, I was like, I'll fly to L.A. right now and help him out. And then it was funny. The next time we did it, he sent Fred Williamson sent me an email telling me he was ready. And the email said, I shit you not, Hammer is in the house. Let's do this. Whoa. And I was just like, I have the biggest boner right now. Oh, my God. I can't even tell you. Uh, the director of Hammer, by the way, only went on to do one other film. Do you want to take a flying guess as to what that other film was? Uh, Love Boat? Galaxy of Terror. Oh! The only other film B.D. Clark ever <laughs> directed was Galaxy of I would, Terror. I would have guessed he went on to some kind of ABC movie of the week. Because everything of. about this movie is so... You know what's brilliant, though? There's so much stuff about it that's really brilliant. The fact that it's set on the docks, which ties into the rail yards, Mm -hmm. means that you can do all kinds of good chase scenes out in a place where you don't need permits, you don't need to block (laughs) traffic. There's nobody else going down that dirt road. You know, it's it's like, that's a good way to do it. And they apparently had some kind of sponsorship with Chrysler, because every car in it was a Chrysler. So there was that going for it. Um, as far as it wasn't as run of the mill as you know you would think. It wasn't quite an independent run of the mill movie as as it as many others would appear to be. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really did. Uh, I don't think it was as good as many of the others. But here's the thing: when you fall in love with black exploitation. Your heart starts getting broken pretty quick, yeah. you know, because you start with the best ones, and then you you veer off of those other ones, and when you run out of the best ones, the ones that aren't the best, it's a big drop off. I feel like you're segueing into our next movie. 
Am I? I think you might be, which is fright. We have a trio of Pam Greer black exploitation movies trio. that, like Hammer, have just hit Blu-ray for the first time thanks to Olive Films. And I'm going to start with the weakest one, and that is unfortunately Friday Foster. And I say unfortunately because Friday Foster has one of the greatest casts of any black exploitation movie I've ever seen. Not just Pam Greer, also Yafet Koto, also Eartha Kitt, also Scatman Crothers, also Paul Benjamin, also fucking Carl Weathers, also Jim Backus. Jim Backus from fucking uh, Gilligan's Island, for God's Mr. sake. Mr. Magoo. Mr. And Mr. Uh, 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 I don't know. I can't see why I'm in this movie. <laughs> Friday Foster is one of those movies that I actually really like. I kind of like the story of the movie. But even though this is Pam Greer after the height of her exploitation stardom, she feels in this movie like she's never been in a movie before. To me, this movie feels like a pilot. Like a movie of the week pilot. Oh yes, for a absolutely. It is. It, it, this movie, I would bet thousands of dollars, was intended to be a TV show just yeah. from the opening alone. Right, right. Which feels like a love boat opening. Well, it, it's uh, it's based on a comic book or a comic strip that was That's made right. into yeah. a uh, was collected into one comic book issue. She's an ex model. She's a magazine photographer. She goes to L.A. to photograph the arrival of Blake Tarr, who is the richest black man in America, and then these guys attempt to assassinate him. And then she is photographing the me- the melee, and she's photographing one of the guys who is one of the assassins. She follows him around. It gets her embroiled into the plot. And then it becomes real super political, but in a way that kind of makes sense to me. But at the same time, feels like an A-Team episode. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel subversive in any way. No, not at all. No, not in any way. Unless you consider subversive the fact that it does feel like... It was made for black people at the time. It does and It does not- feature a plot where a, a white assistant asshole, who's basically Associate Bob from Demolition Man, and he's an assistant, he has organized this plot by which all of the great black leaders in America are going to be at one place at one time, and then he's going to assassinate all of them with a bunch of white guys in blackface... By the way, I was like, uh, can we please establish that they're going to be in blackface before you just shove a bunch of assassins in blackface on the screen? Like, that's a totally normal thing? Because that was really bizarre to me. Yeah, that's that's asking for a lot. That's, it is. That's asking for a leap of, like, there should be, like, like a, a William Castle flashing of, you know, no, no <laughs> Put on your black spray glasses. No, no white people will be admitted after the first 15 <laughs> minutes of this movie because you'll have a culture shock and freak out. That's entirely possible. But uh, it's it's got quality to it, but it just doesn't have any suspense to it. No, no, it, I agree with that. It's I agree so made-for-TV pilot feeling that they just don't build up any real stakes. You know, like you never... It's it's the the violence is pretty pedestrian. There's mm. there's just something about it that doesn't quite mesh for me. That I can't put my finger on it because it's just kind of lifeless for for all that for everything it's got going for it. Maybe it's the director's fault. Maybe it's the producer's fault. But you you kind of see the seams in Pam Greer's acting. You oh know, like, yeah, for like, sure. Yeah, like she's got to carry this movie against a lot of other people, and you got Eartha Kitt for God's sake. I mean, you know, and Carl just, Weathers, and Carl Weathers. He's, if we just talked about the black exploitation Rocky, and here we have Carl Weathers in yeah. a black exploitation movie, which I have never seen before. I've never seen Carl Weathers in a black exploitation movie. 
Which was kind of bizarre. Yeah, like, as yeah. many as I've seen, I thought he would have turned up at some point. Sure. Turns out, no. You know who's in it that's in every black exploitation movie? Scatman Crothers. Ted Lang. Ted Lang. That is very true. Absolutely fucking true. He's in Woodstock. That's, oh, <laughs> He's and, still there. And then, and, and then uh, we're talking about uh, Isaac from The Love Boat. And, uh, Soon we'll be making another black exploitation film. You've got a permanent job being a super douchey side character. Remember when he used to say dynamite? <laughs> and, uh, another odd uh, cameo in, in Hammer is uh, you got Fred Grandy rerun doing a dance number. Yeah, that was odd. And, and he's also in uh, Woodstock. He, it, no, not Woodstock, in Wattstock. Watts. I didn't watch stack, not Woodstock. What is wrong with you, Johnny I, Neal? Are I you having know. a stroke? I, probably. Probably. Okay. I just, you know, see, <laughs> I don't see color. So Woodstock. <laughs> no, you taste them. That's how you know you're having a stroke. That's exactly a, what it is. I have a synesthesia thing going with uh, <laughs> Chad Lang and Woodstock and Watts stacks. I like it. I like it a lot. So yeah, Watts stacks. If you've not seen Watts stacks, it's the black exploitation Woodstock. There you it's, go. It's the giant concert in L.A. with Isaac Hayes as the headliner, and Ted Lang has an interview scene, like an extended scene of him being interviewed. They keep cutting to to people being interviewed, and Ted Lang is in it, and he, he's in that. He's in. Oh, forget it. He's in everything. It's, <laughs> forget about. He was even in a Marin episode last season. Yeah. So, um, back to Friday Foster. I wonder what would have happened if it would have been picked up as a TV show. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Get Christy Love would have taken on a new life. Yeah, I wish that show would have lasted more than one season. We all do, Johnny Neal. Yeah. But let's talk about two of the greatest black exploitation films two of all of time. Two of the greatest. Both directed by Jack Hill. Jack Hill. Both produced by AIP, Roger Corman's production company. We have Coffee and Foxy Brown. Now, I think you and I are right on the same page as to which of these we prefer. But these are both, again, two of the greatest black exploitation films. And the two reasons that Pam Greer is still relevant to this day. Yeah, definitely. They're her two best films. And so, I mean, the movie's basically... Here's the dif- difference between these two films. Is who Pam Greer is avenging. Well, that's the difference in one way. But to break that down in coffee... Let's just talk about both of them at the same time. Let's do it. Because you know what? We trust our listeners to, to, to get on the boat. They're going to want to watch these movies. They should want to watch these movies. In coffee... She's a nurse. She's a working nurse in San Francisco, and the drugs invade her neighborhood, and her sister goes in a coma. Oh, in coffee, it's yeah. her uh, her brother. Her brother. No, no, no. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. No, it is her sister. Her sister goes you... in a coma, yeah. and uh, because she ODs, and she basically wants to clean up her neighborhood. She becomes Charles Bronson. She becomes Charles Bronson. It's a woman's death wish, with Pam Greer being awesome. Then in Foxy Brown, she's already like some kind of a superhero. Like, <laughs> I mean, like people go, oh, well, you know, you better watch out. You're in Foxy Brown's territory. You know, that she, she's yeah, a bad... Yeah, people already know who she is. They already know who she is. She doesn't seem to have any any job or anything except... Be, she's like... Uh, 
uh, Have Gun Will Travel or, or something. I mean, it really kind of has a Western, you know. Foxy Brown will travel all across the land. Bum, 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 ba, da, Foxy Brown keeps guns in her hair. <laughs> Razor blades in her hair. Uh, I love Foxy Brown. It's got a fantastic soundtrack by Willie Hutch. Yep. That's a fantastic soundtrack. And Roy, which, in another difference, Willie Hutch is a great soul singer, right? Uh, Coffee, Roy Ayers, is a great jazz musician. So yeah. there's there's a lot I'm of... I'm ashamed that I had to look that up and you just pulled that shit off the top of your head. I well had done, John. I had both of those on vinyl. Of course and, you did. You know, those were two of my very favorite albums. What's your favorite? Okay, I have Trouble Man, I have Hell Up in Harlem, and I have Shaft on vinyl. So what is your favorite black exploitation soundtrack that you own on vinyl? Well, uh, I'm going to go with what I have owned, and I'm going to say Trouble Man is one of them. Yes! Uh, black Caesar... Oh, James Brown, nice. Pay the cost for being boss. Oh my God, yeah. Uh, Shaft, of course. Of course. Sha- actually, buying a copy of Shaft on a whim at an Austin record convention is what got me started on everything. I just kind of bought it on a whim, like oh five bucks, yeah. And I just so like it brought back memories of seeing Isaac Hayes on the Oscars when I was like six and watching him and going. Wow, that's not allowed in this house. You know, yeah. <laughs> everything about him. It was like was, when Eminem won the Oscar for Eight Mile. It, it was just like, oh my or 3-6 god. Or Three Six Mafia he, won for uh, Hustle and Flow. It, Hustle and Flow. That's a great movie too. It is. That is the hip hop Rocky. That <laughs> Hammer is the black exploitation Rocky. I shit you not. Black uh, Hustle and Flow is the hip hop Rocky. That's a good call. I'm just saying. Yeah, but and yet, uh, neither one I'm of us go, own Truck Turner. Um. I've never been able to find the soundtrack on vinyl. We got a mission, Johnny Neal. And, uh, we got a mission. Uh, yeah. But you know um, who's in both these movies besides Pam Greer? Take a flying guess. If Pam, Pam Greer always works with not just Roger Corman, not just Jack Hill, who directed both these movies, but a certain actor that inexplicably she worked with in every fucking movie. Robert Dookie? Sid Haig. Oh, Sid Haig, of course. Yeah, Sid Haig yeah. is in both of these. Sid Haig, I don't know how the two of them got hooked up. But every Pam Greer movie you've ever seen, well, he's almost a Jack Hill guy. Yeah, but he like, was in Spider Baby. He was in Spider Baby. That's a good point. Yeah. Jack Hill, by the way, is one of the great unsung heroes of blacks of, of uh, exploitation movies. Switchblade Sisters, which Johnny Neal mentioned, is amazing. Foxy Brown and Coffee, Big Birdcage, Big Dollhouse. Um, he also did Pit Stop. He also did uh, Spider Baby. He also did. He was one of the like eight directors on the Terror. I think, like, at a certain point, like, Francis Ford Coppola and um, Paul, Sh- Paul Schrader and, like, all these people were technically the director of that movie. Um, I don't know why he's not still working. I don't either. He uh, I mean, he's remar- He did Sorceress, by the way, which is one of the great sword and sandal movies of the 80s, and then just stopped. And he was just yeah. done. He never did another movie after And I that. saw an interview with him when Switchblade Sisters came out, and he looked great. He looked healthy. He just, I don't know, it just, like... I don't know. I don't get it. I don't yeah. understand how Hollywood works when it comes to stuff like that. The guy delivers. He delivers quality stuff at a cheap price. And and you know, compare compare him, compare Coffee and Foxy Brown to any other black exploitation movie, and they're both head and shoulders and afro above the rest. Of it. <laughs> um, I like that. So like Coffee that. is kind of a, a morality tale, you know, and and it's about a woman who wants things to be better. It's about McGruff the violent crime dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's because 
She, but a violent crime dog in the age of Watergate, you know, yeah, who finds you political go. corruption, there you go. no matter how hard she tries, and she trusts people, and she gets shit on over and over, and then she just gets a shotgun and starts blowing people's fucking nuts off. <laughs> and looks great doing it. And I, and I think the reason for me that I like coffee more is the scene where she has razor blades in her hair. Yeah. And she goes up against Linda Haynes from Rolling Thunder, who is another... She goes undercover, basically, as a hooker into this stable of prostitutes. And one of them doesn't like that the new girl is getting all the attention. And Linda Haynes goes and reaches for her hair, her afro. (laughs) And it's like some kind of Halloween candy (laughs) prank. It's just... Fucking insane! I I love coffee. Is is my favorite of these two? And it's it's one of my favorite black exploitation movies ever. Best pimp in film history, King George. King George he even has his own Roy Ayer song, <laughs> King George. He is the coolest pimp ever, and he has a sad demise to me. I was heartbroken the way he he went out. It's on the poster, so I'm not you know spoiling anything. Yeah. And then the weird bit of stunt casting is Alan Arbus. As uh, the um, the white guy who's in charge of all of the crime. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about? Yes. He played uh, the psychiatrist that was a recurring character on MASH. Whenever they would have an episode where everybody's like, when I can't maudlin. fucking take it anymore. When it from, went from funny to maudlin? Well, like the flick actually, of a switch. He, he kind of had enough charm about himself mm. that he could phrase things. You know, he would he could get people to... To bring their shit around to like, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know? Yeah. It was like, and his name was Sidney Freeman, so he had Sigmund Freud as his. Uh, and and uh, it was like, I want a psychiatrist like that. Yeah. I wasn't a happy child. But no. anyway, uh, so it's funny to see him in that. And he has the most revealing evil line ever. He pushes Pam Greer to the floor. And this guy weighs... Like eight pounds soaking wet, holding a quart of milk, right? I mean, he's a scrawny, <laughs> scrawny little guy. Yeah. And he pushes Pam Greer to the floor and he says, Crawl to me, my nigger bitch. Yeah. And it's, it's like, wait a minute, you're the nice psychiatrist guy. <laughs> Who is the most fucked up of anyone in the movie? By the way, uh, King George is played by uh, Robert Doquie, That's, who, yeah. who you may recognize as the sergeant from all of the Robocop movies. They're like, I'm at the end of my rope, Sergeant, from that Detroit precinct where Alex Murphy was RoboCop. Yeah. So that's probably where you rec- you recognize it from. These two movies, I'm sorry, like, we may we may have problems with Friday Foster. I like Hammer a lot, but these two movies right here are the reason to purchase this entire quartet of yeah. olive film Blu-rays. Even though, again, I'm so disappointed that there are no special features whatsoever, because if there are two movies I want to know more about, it's Foxy Brown and Coffee. I want to know about the making of those movies. I'll tell you the truth. I would love to see those two movies as Criterion edition. Oh, I agree I with you 1,000%. I would John. love for Criterion to kind of go, okay, Sweden, that's enough. Let's look... <laughs> Errol Morris, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Let's look at black exploitation. Oh my god! Can Let's you imagine, show like, you the difference between shitty black exploitation and the high art black exploitation. I I agree. I couldn't agree more. I literally could not agree more with that statement. Truck Turner, uh, uh, fuck you, Errol Morris. Truck yeah. Turner is the real documentarian of our day. Yeah. Let's be real. Yeah. I mean, so goddamn, goddamn. We're gonna talk about a couple movies uh, that are really depressing, and then we're gonna we're gonna finish out the show with something that's really fun. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and dig into a couple of really depressing films that I saw that Johnny Neal did not. Uh, we're going to start with Get, G-E-T-T, which is also called 
get the trial of Vivian uh, uh, Amsalam, which is a... I didn't know this. I will admit fully to not knowing this. Apparently, this is the third film in a trilogy, which I think if I had known that, if I had seen the other two films, might have made a difference. Is it German? Uh, it is a French film oh. about a... Um, it's about an ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman who is trying to get a divorce from her husband. Oh. Yeah, and the whole film basically is told within this one room, this one courtroom that is very rabbinical, and by that I mean three rabbis are the judges that preside over this court, and she wants a divorce from her husband because she doesn't love him anymore, and they're just like, no, you need to go back with him. I don't know why I'm adopting this accent. I'm sorry, it's very offensive. Jackie Mason is I, one of I his don't know. greatest I don't know. movies. I'm sorry, it's very offensive. They're like, you need to go back with him uh, and try this out for three months, and she's like, okay, I'll do it. You, and need, then, you need to give your husband another chance. I can't do Woody Allen. But. You, uh, you, I mean, if he didn't marry like a 12-year-old Chinese girl, I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thank you. Um, so, like, it's really just about, the whole movie is really hitting upon this point that, you know, Orthodox Jewish culture is very still to this point misogynistic and it is not like women are such second class citizens. And at first I thought to myself, I was watching this movie, I thought to myself for Music Box films, I thought to myself, well, this is really kind of drawing out this point that they could have made in like 10 minutes and I get it like the whole movie is just the husband being a complete dick like not showing up when he was supposed to and that should have been grounds for divorce but they just won't give it to her and it, it they're like they're giving him all the power even though he's being a colossal douchebag and at first I was like well you're really like beating a dead horse here but then I realized something I realized that the idea of religion interfering into public policy that tells you who you can and cannot be married to is not specific to the Jewish culture. Oh. It's exactly what's going on in America right now with gay marriage, is that we pretend that we have a separation of church and state when really we live in a sort of strange theocracy that you know our, all of our lawmakers are being, are being coaxed by their constituents who are still like Bible-thumping Midwesterners and say, I don't want that, so you can't vote for that even though it makes no sense whatsoever so to me the movie finally reached me on the level of oh wait a minute as much as this movie seems like there should be a cultural uh keeping me culturally at, at, at arm's length i understand that it's not just the jewish culture that is centuries behind and how it how it actually deals with um you know political doctrine how it actually deals with policy it's still allowing religion to dictate how it makes policy. And that's exactly what's going on with Christianity in this country. I will say, had I seen the other two movies in this series, maybe it would have resonated a little bit more because part of the problem I had with it is that it it just didn't feel, I don't know, it didn't feel very dramatic to me because it was just like, um, you know, the actress, uh, Ronit uh, Elkabetz, who plays the titular character is she's a very I mean there's not a bad performance in the movie but so much of it is just one note one note one note well, it sounds kind of stage bound it, it's super stage bound absolutely and I feel like it doesn't have the same punch as something you know if we're talking about a courtroom drama something like 12 angry men you know it's just like and I and that probably sounds like a really misogynist thing to say that's not what I mean it's just it's not written to be there's not a lot of great revelations that come out during this trial other than Oh, her husband is still a douchebag. Well, I always find it weird with religion of any religion that when people choose their religion over their nationality, 
You know, like yes, like their religious dogma outweighs in her life. She's so dogmatic mm. <laughs> about it that what they say will be more divide, more influential on her life than what the Magna Carta or whatever France is based on will say. You know, yeah. like French law comes in second. Her French citizenship comes in second to her place within the the religion and i you know that's not just in france obviously like you just said because i mean we have government for safeguards against that sort of thing mm-hmm. um so that I, I always find that kind of weird like just leave go get a lawyer for god's sake don't go to a priest go to a lawyer yeah so and, and it's weird because at certain points during the film uh you know the lawyer is talking to her in french and the, the rabbis are like speak you know hebrew and it's, it, it was really interesting to me, like, oh, they, they speak two completely different foreign languages to me, and they're alternating back and forth. But other than that, I just thought, the first of all, the score is really epic, really dramatic, and nothing in the movie matches that, which is always really kind of awkward for me. I never really know how to deal with that. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think there's probably a lot to be gleaned from this movie if you've seen the first two films in the franchise, which I didn't even realize it was the end of a trilogy. Well, is it based on a play or something? I don't know if it's based on a play. It's just, there's two previous movies that kind of tell the whole story. And I think it is kind of an ongoing, um, you know, exploration of rabbinical culture and how it relates to women. Um, so it's pretty modern. It's super modern in concept, which is part of the problem. I think is that it's, you know, I think a lot of people are going to have trouble accessing it, knowing that you're thinking that, you know, that's still, and it is still something that happens to this day. I get that. But I think a lot of people considering there's not a lot of drama in the movie apart from how they're treating this. It it just seems like the story of Job, like to the point that they're just beating down on this woman for no reason whatsoever because of the way their culture is structured, that it's just, it becomes, it becomes a chore. Hey, and speaking of chores, let's talk about She-Devil, which is a movie I actually saw for the about first... About another Jewish woman oh who's my having God. problems. Why anyone thought Roseanne Barr should be a film star is so far beyond me. It's not even... Like, I can't even... I can't, my favorite Roseanne Barr performance is in The Naked Gun, and it's not even Roseanne Barr. It's somebody making fun of Roseanne Barr. Okay, Dial it back a little there, Ombre. No, nope, sorry, don't. I mean, Ro- she's great on TV. Yeah. But name one Roseanne Barr movie you've ever no, liked. No, I, mean, I haven't even seen her in a movie. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, but you don't... Okay, I get what you're saying, but... As a film star. Now, I'm not saying she's untalented. I'm saying as a film star, there is no reason this woman should have been a film star. And, and this movie is like the cream of absolutely aggressively unpleasant filmmaking that stars Roseanne Barr as a woman whose husband leaves her for a very attractive author. She is Meryl Streep, right? Meryl Streep, yep. And her husband is played by Ed Begley Jr. And so he leaves her for this attractive writer and you know she's been a uh, a very, you know, devoted wife. She's raising their kids and so for the rest of the movie, she decides that she is going to completely destroy his life. And it's like I get that. I I get the revenge element there. I mean, he's a complete douche and he's, you know, shacking up with Meryl Streep just because she's hotter and it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I get that. But there's never a point in the film, in my opinion, where this character becomes at all likable that you can actually get in her corner and say, yeah, 
fuck that guy's life all up. It ends up being like, there are things she does in this movie that you're just like, wait, doesn't that impact you just as it impacts him? But, okay, here's the question. Is it funny? I don't think so. Okay. I literally don't think there is a a passable joke in this entire movie. Uh, I mean, I I mean... (laughs) I will say that it's funny that before doing this movie, Meryl Streep was criticized and people questioned whether she could even do comedy. This movie doesn't help. This movie does not help that argument. I think she can. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I think this movie is probably not the greatest entry point for her. It is the, I will say, it's the theatrical feature film debut of Roseanne Barr, for whatever that's worth. I mean, it's definitely a vehicle, right? It's like, let's, we got a TV star who's very popular, let's... Jack her misanthropic behavior, which is... It's weird to me how Hollywood movies completely misinterpret Hollywood TV. Yeah. You know, like, like Roseanne, the character on Roseanne, wasn't misanthropic. She was just fed up, you know? She was tired of working so hard, and she had her own world that she lived in, and she didn't take any shit off anybody. But when you're a Hollywood movie executive, you go, well, I've got to expand on that to just make her completely crazy. Yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the, the total double standard this movie is trying to walk, is like, she's crazy, she's unpleasant, she's horrible, and at the same time, we're supposed to get behind her because she's trying to ruin the relationship between her husband and this new woman who is painted to be the horrible one. But when you go to such extreme lengths to make her so actively horrendous as a human being it's like wait who's really the horrible one in this in this equation and right. i just i don't get that and yeah. it, that's not funny to me and i don't understand how anyone thought this movie was going to work i also don't understand does this movie have a cult following why does it need to be on blu-ray well I don't it died understand. when it came out i mean it was it was a total box office bomb at what 91 maybe 90 91 uh 19 that is a very good question johnny 1989 89 yeah. yeah i mean it was a total dud I will say that this movie, I think, effectively taught Meryl Streep how to play the role later in Devil Wears Prada. Like, I feel like it's it's pretty much the same role that she would play years later. Um, and but you know. well, okay, so that's what I'm saying. It, as uh, it's a it's a vehicle that would put Roseanne on the big screen, mm-hmm. and and it's not unusual for people to totally fail on the big screen. Remember that horrible. Uh, uh, Ellen DeGeneres movie with uh, Mr. Wrong. Yeah, like <laughs> Mr. Wrong Project. It's like what what makes them work on TV is that they have time to work out what it is that they do and and make it work as a series. You know, it's like thirteen half hours that gets renewed. It gives you so much more to work with, and you can change things on the spot. And in movies like that, you're you're just kind of stuck. Mm. So they think. You're a big star. We've got this script about this. You know, you're perfect for it, and you can give some comedy lessons to Meryl Streep at the same time. Right. Uh, and, and you know what? Let me just put it to you this way: This is everything you need to know about this movie. Um, there are two, two Bollywood remakes of this film, <laughs> both of which are more successful than the original <laughs> film. There is Safi Li Lavathi and Biwi Number One. Uh, both of which in 95 and 99 were remakes of this film both more successful than the original film don't need to say much more than that Olive Films thank you so much for putting on all the blaxploitation not sure why you put this one out yeah the weird thing about the Bollywood ones though is when the the she devil gets on everybody's 
nerves, the husband just throws acid in her face. And then they dance. And then they dance. And then they dance. <laughs> they dance around her. And that brings us to the last film we're going to talk about, which is also our giveaway. Oh, you're going to be lucky. Somebody's going to get lucky on this one. This was the Johnny Neal Facebook message movie. <laughs> Which should be a theme on every show we do. This is the movie that while Johnny Neal was watching, he sent me copious amounts of Facebook messages about, and it made me laugh so hard. Zombievers is a horror comedy uh, that just came out last year from director Jordan Rubin, which is about a fun-filled weekend that turns into madness and horror for a bunch of groupies looking for fun in a beaver-infested swamp. Now, the thing is, these beavers have been tainted by toxic waste. Because... Because John Mayer... And Bill Burr are the worst. Are the worst sanitation workers in the world. That's how this movie starts, is with John Mayer and Bill Burr driving around having a completely hilariously crass conversation. Uh, That is so improvised. Oh, totally improvised. so improvised. And you can tell by the outtakes at the end of the movie that they were just improvising the whole speech. Uh, Bill Burr is is driving. He's on his phone. And my favorite line is, uh, is John Mayer's like, do you see that deer? And they're like miles away from this deer. And, and Bill Burr's on his phone texting, yeah, I totally do. And they get closer and closer and closer to it. And John Mayer's like, I don't think you do. And then they hit it. The toxic waste flies off the back of the truck. And then what we proceed to get is like a Saul Boss title yeah, sequence. The title sequence kind of blew me away. I was like, this is re- this is like Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Return to the Living Dead style. Yeah, it, it made me think of uh, uh, Lost in Space and Land of the Giants and uh, all those great animated sequences that were not Saul Bass. Zombieverse! Zombieverse! Danger Will Robinson, there are zombieverse! <laughs> Plap, 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 plap. <laughs> this movie is so full of delightful surprises. Yes. It's so tacky and trashy and funny. Uh, it just gets better and better as it goes along. It really does. And I think you mentioned this to me, and I think you're absolutely right. The dialogue at the beginning of the film is such a bore. Yeah. And it really does drag, and you're like, oh, no, what did I sign up for? But then... As things get kookier and kookier. And kookier is the word. And kooky is definitely the word. Because one of the things I love most about this movie is they knew they were low budget. So they went for puppet zombie beavers. Right. There really are no digital effects in this Which fucking movie. Which is so refreshing. Yes, very much so. And it's just, it's so much, you just have to give over to it and enjoy what it's doing. Because you realize about halfway through that it is taking itself exactly as seriously as a movie called Zombievers should be. Right. Without being completely... Uh, pandering without being completely cloying about it. I think it's a lot of fun. I love the design of the undead beavers. I love that people are turning into beavers. (laughs) That's just... That, like... That's the thing where you go, oh, shit. Uh, Okay, uh, you win. You win! And I will say this. It actively plays with the expectation of horror movies. Yeah. There are things that happen in this movie that you're like, oh, that's what a normal horror movie would do. And this one is saying completely, like, fuck you to that. We're going to go a different route, and I really respect it for that. And, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with this movie, and I'm looking forward to the next film that Jordan Rubin makes. I think this is one of the better uh, horror comedies of the last couple of years. I think this is a movie that really understands what it's doing, that really does kind of pay homage to the, the classic practical era of horror, and is still silly as all get out while being a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's fun to watch. 
everybody's in on the joke without ever winking at the camera. You know, they'd like play their parts. Oh, I'm the lovelorn sad girl. Yeah. I'm the chick who takes off her top. Immediately. You know? <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the the guy that is kind of a big big shot guy and I mean you know he's on he was on like NCIS or something oh that guy that yeah, guy yeah, you've yeah. seen him in a million things sure and, and he's the hunter that is Rex like, Lynn Rex Lynn yeah you, you, the guy you never know his name he always looks like he has a dip in his mouth he's always the agent of something it, yes. FBI CIA whatever it may be yeah. but this is our giveaway we're giving away a DVD copy of Zombievers and here's how you're gonna win. You're going to follow us at one of us net on Twitter. And then what you're going to do is you're going to tweet at us with what your zombie animal movie would be. Give us the title and then give us the tagline. And then hashtag that ZB giveaway. We'll pick our favorite one and that person will win a DVD copy of Zombievers. What, what would yours be? Mine would be zombie tortoises, and it would be called You that's... Don't You Don't Have a Shell of a Chance. Oh, that's so great because... The zombies go so slow. They're so slow. They're super shambling. Oh, my God. That would be a great sequel to Frogs. It would be. And I feel like I just stole the thunder of everyone who's going to enter. I'm sorry, Nobody would have thought of that. Sorry, guys. Our listeners are brilliant, but you're you're special brilliant. I am the Punisher. That is what I do. That is what I do. All our listeners will agree with that. I think so, too. (laughs) Johnny Neal, thank you so much for joining me yet again. Thank you, Brian. Digital Noise. If you guys want to follow us on Twitter, we are at one of us, Nat, at DigiNoiseCast. I am at Salisbury. Johnny Neal will get on Twitter at some point. You can find him on Facebook at Johnny Neal. That's two L's at the end of that shit. It's probably Johnny Michael Neal. Johnny Michael Neal! <laughs> if you haven't become a subscriber already, please consider doing that. That really benefits us. We appreciate that. That's how we keep the lights on. If you would like to buy these movies or anything on Amazon, please use our Amazon links that will be on this page probably the day after it posts. Um, go here first. Click on any of those Amazon links or just click on the sidebar of the pick of the week, uh, which for this week, once again, was Kingsman. And buy anything on Amazon once you get through. That really benefits us, and we appreciate it. But uh, I'm going to end the show the way I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all.